Schumann's Kinderszenen, Scenes from Childhood, as it's usually called in English, though a stricter translation might be children's scenes or even children scenes. first glance, there doesn't seem to be very much to this delicious music. It's a brief cycle in 13 almost fragmentary episodes, which Schumann himself called light pieces. But still, it's one of the best-loved musical works ever written about childhood. Some listeners will perhaps remember trying to play these pieces in childhood piano lessons, and others, like me, might even recall dancing to them in infant ballet classes. But Schumann himself was adamant that these fleeting miniatures were not actually children's music. He called them adult reminiscences for adults. In other words, we should see this music as part and parcel of that whole early romantic fascination with the discovery and even the invention of the meaning of childhood. And, more importantly, how childhood and the way we remember it influence what we are as adults. So, in a way, Schumann's piece is perhaps not so much about childhood as about memory. And not only the memories we all have, or think we have, of Christmases of long ago and games and tears and toys and laughter, but also that different kind of memory, that intricate structure of autonomous memories that a great work of music always creates within itself. Kinderzenen is a masterpiece viewed from many different angles, but particularly it is a masterpiece of invented memories. calls this opening number of strange lands and people and if our immediate response to that title is to imagine that the child the supposed hero of this music is being told some kind of fairy tale we might also pause to think that in fact the whole cycle comes from strange lands and people the past is another country at all events this is where these memories begin with this unforgettable two-bar phrase. Which is immediately remembered. And then remembered again, but in a slightly different way. Before being dissolved into something less substantial, a shadow of a memory. And then the whole phrase is repeated, another act of remembering. It's the opening five notes of the melody here that are the most important. Remember. 
Remember that little skipping rhythm in the middle there? We'll come back to that. But for a second or two, let's just first concentrate on the notes of the melody. This is the simple shape from which Schumann will create nearly all the ideas, nearly all the memories that follow. Already in these very opening bars, there are all sorts of shadows of this shape being prepared and suggested in the accompanying music underneath the melody, upside down in the bass, for example. comes the lilting middle section of this apparently so simple little movement. Something different, something new. Except that underneath there, there's another shadow of the opening. There's that skipping rhythm again, and that's quickly answered by the same skipping rhythm simultaneously in the melody and the bass, like a bird flying past in the air and the shadow of the bird flying past at the same time on the ground. And there are also some rather strange harmonies at this point, from strange lands and people. We asked our pianist to play slowly so you could savour every tiny detail Schumann works into what is just two bars of music. And then the original melody reappears. Another memory, if you like. And that memory, too, is repeated. Everything here seems to be in the process of being remembered. I suppose you could say that probably all music depends on repetition and memory, but rarely does a composer make us so intensely aware of that fact as Schumann does here. He even slips in a tiny, tiny memory in the very last bar. Where he changes the accompaniment very slightly to make us aware of this rocking figure. which, of course, suggests yet another return to the opening. Except that what happens this time is not a straight return, but a transformed one, a new opening, a new piece, called Curious Story. In lots of ways, this is something new, except that at the same time it's also not so new. There are so many connections with the previous movement for us to notice. 
The overall form is very similar, both halves repeated, with some slightly different music at the beginning of the second half. And that same skipping rhythm is still there. Even though it's now in three time, like a waltz. But now look at something else. The opening notes of this little dancing march. When you stretch them out, turn out to have some curious connections with the opening melody of the first movement. And those connections themselves continue through the next phrase. And the next where although this movement is in a different key to the first one, we find ourselves hearing which is exactly the same as the opening of the first movement. The concentration, the sheer density of all these echoes and recollections that Schumann packs into this music is astonishing. Like the second movement, the third movement changes key. This, Schumann tells us, is a game of catch, or tag, or tig as we used to call it in my primary school playground. Once again, although the proportions have changed, we have something like the same form. An idea appears and is repeated. Then there's a new idea followed by a return to the opening. And then the whole of that second part also gets repeated. The same honeycomb of reminiscences. And once again, here too there is a mass of more detailed connections to what we've already heard in the previous two numbers. If you take this opening, for example, and slow it down. It's revealed as a sort of filled-in version of this, the beginning of the first movement, yet again. And if you think that's impressive, try this. 
The next movement, the fourth movement, Pleading Child, begins with an especially cunning idea. That little image manages to join together both the opening of the first movement and its middle music as well. to make a kind of hybrid. This pleading child fourth movement is the first point in the piece when the proportions, the characteristic overall shape of the different movements, begin to change. The typical contrasted middle section, which we've heard in every movement so far, has now expanded and the opening and closing music around it has become smaller and more elusive. In fact, Schumann seems in this movement almost to have reversed the relationship between the two different kinds of music, between the outside and the inside. And at the very end of this movement, he undermines the security of the outside music even further by pulling off a new trick. He just leaves the music hanging in mid-air. Well, this is a pleading child, and it seems the child's pleadings are soon answered by a movement that in my old copy is called in English Perfect Happiness, though I'm told the original German, Glückes Genug, should really be translated of sufficient happiness, or even of sufficient luck. At all events, one way or another, the child seems to have got what they wanted. subtly Schumann binds these two movements together. Listen in particular to how the melody of the end of the pleading child leads seamlessly into the opening of the gratifying happiness that follows. And notice, too, that taken both together, those two phrases are a kind of composite, opening out, yet another, this time more extended, reworking of the beginning of the whole cycle.
In this fifth movement, what we now see to be this endlessly flexible and pervasive and even haunting idea is built into much longer chains or sequences. Especially fascinating here is the play of echoes between the left and right hands, which you can hear more clearly if you ask the pianist to leave out the offbeat accompaniment figure. Once again, as at the very opening of the cycle, shadows in the depths seem to follow or even sometimes anticipate the high, clear scraps of melody in the right hand above them. And if we listen carefully to the end of this movement, we can hear something else too. In the left hand, a long scale. Which in a strange way almost seems to sum up everything we've heard so far. But it also topples us straight over into the opening of the next number, for this rising scale. Is answered by a falling scale. They're like the two sides of a wave. This sixth movement is important event, and it's important in several ways. In the first place, it returns us to elements of the first two movements that we might have forgotten for a moment, like that skipping rhythm. And then, of course, there's that same shape we've heard so many times already. Which comes here in both hands, but with the most striking effect in the bass. But even more than the music of the first movement, what's really behind this sixth movement is the second movement. Curious story. That second movement and the sixth movement, important event, are toy soldier marches. Both are in three time, and both have a distinctive skip on the first beat of the bar. So there you are, six movements, all different, but each one deeply connected to all the others. 
What is Schumann doing here in the first half of his Kinderszenen cycle? There are so many strange echoes and internal connections that the ear almost reels from the density and speed of invention and the sheer amount of fantasy that it's being asked to respond to. And this in music that the composer himself disingenuously called light pieces. I once heard these children's scenes described as a set of variations, but I think that's too rigid a way of understanding what the composer's doing. The apparent division of this music into different episodes or movements is an illusion. It's actually a single continuous journey built out of a single idea, which comes to its first big climax here with an important event. <laughs> At this point, after this long single journey of the opening six movements, Schumann introduces some real changes. It's almost as though at this moment in the cycle, the first movement is over, and a new movement, a second movement, begins—a new self-contained group of little pieces. And the first of these is Träumerei, Reverie, or Daydream. It's one of the most celebrated pieces that Schumann ever wrote. It was a favourite lollipop, for example, of the late Vladimir Horowitz, who used to throw it in casually as an encore at the end of a long concert. Now at last we're in a really new place, a new tonal area, a new color and feeling, and Schumann launches this new paragraph in his cycle with a densely woven web of almost hidden inner voices, so hidden indeed that we asked our pianist to play the lower voices alone, so you could take pleasure in those parts one doesn't usually hear because the ear is so powerfully drawn to the sweetness of the melody.
But now, let's go back to the melody that hangs above those inner voices. What do we have here? Surprisingly enough, or rather not surprisingly at all, this is yet another extension, a much longer one than any we've heard so far, of the same opening motif that we've been listening to all along. So, this famously haunting and distinctive music is in fact continuing the process that the first six movements have already begun, which means that it's really pointless playing it on its own as a lollipop. Its significance is that it's part of an argument that's already taking place, and it makes sense when you hear it in the context to which it belongs. first group or large-scale movement in Kindersenen consists of six pieces, the second group is half that length, three. Troimerai is followed by two other closely related numbers, at the hearth and knight or cavalier on a hobby horse. At the hearth is in the same key as Troimerai and the two pieces begin with the same two notes. and the whole first phrase of the melody of Troimerai. is found transmuted in the first phrase of this new piece. Yet again, in spite of the web of memories that links this music to everything we've heard before, this new movement also sounds different. And what makes it so different is, in part, this delightful off-beat accompaniment. And that off-beat dancing is immediately picked up in the next number, the knight on the hobby horse galloping round the room.
Of course, as you're no doubt expecting me to say, there are many other connections here to what we've heard before. But by this stage in the cycle, what I find most extraordinary is not so much that these connections are all there, but the fact that every time I hear the piece, I hear different ones. In Schumann's astonishing journey of memory, nothing is fixed, nothing is pinned down. The music is constantly reinventing itself with every performance. For example, on this occasion, I noticed that the skipping figure in the right hand outlines a simple harmonic journey. Which is very familiar. And the left hand of the galloping hobby horse. reworks this idea from the middle of the first piece. But you might have noticed quite different connections, like the way these bold octaves at the end of the movement round off this second group in the cycle with an almost orchestral gesture of defiance. It's a strange sound, and it's no wonder that it catches at the ear and I think one reason it does so is that it leaves a hole in the harmony. We assume that this is a major chord. But it could be a minor one. And then that missing note hanging on at the end there would be the opening of the next movement, which is called Almost too serious. Another journey into a new and unexplored tonal area and a quite new harmonic colour. Although there's been a big change here, this movement picks up on several features of the music immediately before it. The idea of the offbeat, for example. This melody, after all, sounds as though it's on the beat. But actually, it's syncopated, swung onto every offbeat. Once again, Schumann takes enormous care in the way he shades each movement into the next one. All the way through Kindersenen, he's breaking down the walls between one movement and the next. So, here, at the end of Almost Too Serious...
The melody outlines this shape. A suggestion of a memory of perfect happiness. Which leads with scarcely a breath into the opening of the next movement and another echo of that same phrase. Naturally, that's not the only memory in this music, which is called frightening, or more accurately, frightening-making. There's also that dotted skipping rhythm from the opening movements of the cycle. And that chain of thirds underneath also seems familiar. One of the great miracles of this music, and of Schumann's imagination generally, is that even once one learns the habit of spotting all these echoes and cross-references, they still retain their capacity to surprise. Familiarity, far from dulling our response, brings only more wonder. The fantasy-like journey of these children's scenes naturally ends with the child falling asleep. In this elaborate slumber music, Musical memories of the day's events overlap, like a sort of distorted canon or echo. Schumann suspends that canon over this by now almost archetypal music of thirds. An echo, perhaps, of the frightening-making music of the previous number. And the most important musical image of the whole cycle. Is not forgotten in this slumber music either. Schumann highlights it giving it to both hands in octaves so that it stands out from the texture just a little. Nor does Schumann let us forget the many other images and reflections gathered over the previous eleven pieces as the child falls asleep 
and the music once again is left hanging in the air. Brief movements linked together in a thousand ways, and tracing several journeys, which themselves suggest that we can group them together into larger movements. And then the composer goes and adds a thirteenth movement, a movement which, more than any other, reinforces Schumann's point that the whole cycle Kinderscenen is not children's music, but adult reminiscences for adults. This last movement is called the poet speaks. Perhaps Schumann has himself in mind, or perhaps he means the poet in all of us, standing outside these childhood memories and wondering what these long ago experiences mean. This last movement draws together nearly everything we've heard in all the previous movements, and it distills them into a prayer. An evening hymn that looks back, that looks back musically indeed to Bach and even beyond. The crucial five-note shape that's come back and back throughout the entire work. Has now assumed a new and strange disguise. It's the same, but different. That shape appears again a moment later, in something most surprising—a recitative, suggesting a voice, a narrator, perhaps even the evangelist from the St. Matthew Passion, certainly the poet, speaking, dreaming, remembering. And then the chorale returns and dies away again, and as it does so, it gently revisits some of the more distant harmonies explored in earlier movements, in a dying fall. It's an off-beat dying fall. The strong first beat of each bar is missed out, as you can feel if you fill in the bass. 
The Poet Speaks. Not long after completing this work, Schumann wrote to his wife Clara, "What wild imaginings and dreams I experienced while writing these scenes." And that's the key, I suppose, imaginings as much as dreams. I suggested at the beginning of the program that in some ways Kindersenen might not even be about childhood at all, but about remembering. Of course, the titles tell us that what is being remembered is childhood, or at least they provide that dramatic frame which stands outside the music and is easy for all of us to grasp. For remembering childhood, one way or another, is something we all do. But really, when we listen to Kentersenen, what we remember is not childhood or extra musical experiences, but something far more immediate. We remember the music itself. Indeed, we remember through the music. This is music of memory, not just in the sense that, like all music, it uses our memories, but in the far more subtle sense that it takes us on a journey of remembering. It reenacts. And dramatizes and gives almost mythic significance to the very process of recall, and it does something else. What wild imaginings! Said Schumann to his wife. In Kindersenen, he asks us to believe that memory is where the imagination comes from.